0: Anybody watch the Dukes of Hazard* when you were a kid? Any Dukes of Hazzard fans? Dukes? Yeah. All right. Awesome. Me too. Okay, so uh, he, he, here's what Dukes of Hazard* fans know, and we'll just explain it to the rest of you who grew up pagan. All right? Um, so here's what Dukes of Hazzard fans know. At the end of a Dukes of Hazard* episode, if nothing has been resolved, what happens is Bo and Luke Duke are in the General Lee, and they, and they go off a ramp, and they're caught midair... And, and 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 the whole thing pauses and everything stops and you hear this voice come over the top going, how them boys gonna get out of this one, you know? And it's very tense. It's very tense. It's it's a drama, is what it is. Is Dukes a Hazard? And then and then the next the next uh, episode, what you get is that exact same voice with that exact same picture saying, last time on the Dukes. Okay, we don't have that guy here this morning to tell you what happened in the last sermon, to tell you what happened on the last episode. And I wish these uh, services were as exciting as the Dukes of Hazard. They are. Dukes of Hazard's fantastic. Get into it. That's just my tip. All right. So here's what we're going to do to start off this morning. What we've got to say is last time at Bayview Glen. All right. Last week, we got to kind of catch up because this today is kind of part two of what we started last week. And last week, we're kind of to be continued. And this week is part two. So that being said, Here are a couple of principles that we established together last week just to remind you where we came from. Number one, Jesus performed physical healing in order to demonstrate his power to heal spiritually and emotionally. Remember, beginning of Matthew chapter 9, Jesus heals a man that's lame from birth, and he says this right before he heals the man. He says, so that you know the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sin." To heal spiritually. So you know I've got that authority. I'm going to heal this man physically. Jesus performed physical healing in order to demonstrate his power to heal spiritually and emotionally. This is absolutely key for where we're going today because we're going to be talking about spiritual, emotional, and relational healing. And we're going to be using this picture of the woman and Jairus, we'll get there in a minute, that we talked about last week, as a picture of what Jesus does in our life, spiritually, emotionally, and relationally. Jesus performed physical healing in order to demonstrate His power, His authority to heal spiritually spiritually and emotionally. So here's the story we took a look at last week. Jesus is getting pretty popular in his ministry, and he's not really hanging out with all the religious elite and the religious rulers. He's hanging out with the scalawags. He's hanging out with the outcasts. He's hanging out with the ostracized. He's hanging out with tax collectors and addicts and hookers and all kinds of different people that wouldn't have been kind of on the norm of society. And finally, somebody comes to him and says, what's up with this, man? Why are you hanging out with all these folks? And Jesus it's just a great statement he says look man the, the people who think they're well they don't need a doctor people who know they're sick that that's who needs a doctor and that's who i'm here for so in the midst of that conversation jesus kind of gets an opportunity to demonstrate his life's mission in just a in a picture in an interaction in a moment because jairus who's a religious leader comes to jesus and he says jesus i have a need I'm one of these sick people, I'm broken, and I'm coming on behalf of my daughter, she's 12 years old, and she's on her deathbed, in fact, she's probably already dead, Jairus talks about her as if she's in the past tense, will you pull my uh, vocal out of this monitor right here, thank you so much. Jairus talks to Jesus as if his daughter has already, has already died. And so Jesus stands up and he starts walking with Jairus. He starts walking with this religious leader towards this 12-year-old girl who is at Jairus' home. Jesus is on his way to heal. And in the midst of that journey, there are crowds coming in from everywhere, and they're pressing up against him, and they're bumping up against him, and people are jockeying for position, and Jesus feels somebody touch him, and he turns around, and he says, who touched me? Who touched me? Peter, Captain Obvious, says, look, there's people everywhere. Like, everybody's touching you. And Jesus says, no, 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 Peter, you stand over there, let me do my thing. That's not in the text, I just put that there, but he, you know, kind of gives him the old look, Yeah, I'm in the middle of something here. And Jesus says, who touched me? And nobody wants to admit it. Everyone was touching him, nobody wants to admit it. Finally, a woman, in fear and trembling, the scripture says, I touched you. The reason she touched him is she believed if she would just touch the hem of his garment, just the edge of of his garment, that she would be healed from 12 years of chronic bleeding. 12 years. When Jesus turns around and asks this question, who touched me, in Jairus' mind and in everybody else's mind, including Peter, because he spoke up, it's kind of a dumb question. Everybody's touching you. So in Jairus' mind, he thinks, Has Jesus gotten distracted? Has he forgotten about me? We were on the way to, you know, he was going to heal my daughter. What in the world is going on? But eventually, Jesus would show up at Jairus' house, and he would raise this little girl from the dead. Here's the principle we pulled. When Jesus starts a healing journey with me, I can be confident he will finish a healing journey with me. When Jesus starts that healing journey with Jairus, when he starts on the road to healing, he is going to finish. He, it might seem like he got distracted. It might seem like he hit the pause button. When Jesus starts a healing journey with you, he will finish that healing journey with you. Philippians chapter one says it this way. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it at the day of Christ Jesus. We said it this way. God will finish the work. My job is to stay in the game. And we even walked away from this place saying, God, maybe, maybe I bailed out on that healing journey. Maybe, maybe I thought you got distracted. I thought you hit the pause button. I thought you forgot about me. And I need to get back in the game with you and trust that you'll finish that healing journey. Principle number two that we pulled from last week is this. Faith in God unleashes the healing power of God in my life. Faith in God unleashes the healing power of God of god in my life let's 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 say that together let's declare that together and put the emphasis where i put it it's really fun all right let's try it faith in god unleashes the healing power of god in my life nothing happens until jairus puts his faith in jesus jesus i believe you can do it nothing happens until the woman puts her faith in jesus and says if i just touch the hem of his garments Faith in God unleashes the healing power of God in my life. So as I kind of process this passage this week, I was really amazed as I read, I was really amazed at how quickly my focus shifted back and forth between Jairus and the woman as the narrative shifts. You know, Jesus is on his way with Jairus and this woman shows up and where I was focused on Jairus, immediately my attention turns to this woman. Then Jesus heals this woman, and immediately, my focus turns back to Jairus and the completion of that healing journey. But, but I pictured this this week, and I want you to picture it with me. Jesus heals this woman. Her clothes were probably stained in blood. Her, she had dirt on her because she had crawled on the ground up behind Jesus. He heals her in a moment. She's instantly and completely made well, and Jesus keeps walking with Jairus. And what's left is just a woman who's just been healed. She's alone. She's amazed. She's healed. Blood and dirt on her clothes. The noise has gone away. The dust has settled. The crowds have dispersed and she's just standing there. I wonder what went through her head. Like, what do I do now? What, do I do now? What, what happens next? Or, did that really just happen? <laughs> did that really just happen? You see, Jesus, when he says, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. That word well is the Greek word sozo. It means whole. It means complete. Yes, in her case, it meant physical healing. But get this, the implications were relational, spiritual, and emotional. It was going to be complete healing. Why? Because up to this point, her chronic bleeding uh, would would have had some serious implications for her. One, marriage was out of the question. If she had been married before, she was divorced now. Likelihood is she was never married. The temple was off limits for her because she uh, she was bleeding, so she was ritually or ceremonially unclean, so she couldn't even go to worship. She likely had no friends. She couldn't work. She couldn't play. She rarely spoke to another human being, and in a word, just a word, in a moment, in an instant, her entire life was changed, and she was healed completely. My question is this. I wonder how long it took for that to set in. I wonder how long it took for this woman to start living as someone who, is, who was healed. I, I'm guessing that she still had to unlearn old habits. Don't you think? 12 years, 12 years. She had developed some habits. I'm guessing that she had to unlearn some of that old ha- those old habits and learn to live from a place of complete healing. Now, if we can see this interaction with this woman as kind of a picture of our spiritual life, the immediate healing that she experienced would would be comparable to justification. It's that moment when you say yes to Jesus, it's saving grace, it's your eternal destination was here and now it's there. You've been adopted into his family and check it out, no one can ever, 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 ever take that away from you, ever. No one can ever take that moment away from you. But then, then there's the learning to live as a saved person. In her case, learning to live as a healed person. The $2 word that theologians use is sanctification. Sanctification, it's, it's I've said yes to Jesus. My eternal destination has changed. No one's ever going to take that away from me. But I've got to learn to say yes to Jesus each and every day. I've got to unlearn some old habits. I've got to learn to walk and live as a completely healed person person and what was true for the woman is true for us and it's cliche because it's really true and here it is old habits die hard don't they old habits die hard i don't know about you but like i I take the same route to work every morning i go vandorf to woodbine to bloomington to to the 404 i get off at steels and i'm on the way right so if i've got to run an errand that's like two exits before steels like if i got to get off at Major Mac or something, coming south on the 404. Guess what I do? I just pass Major Mac, and I get off at Steeles. You guys ever done that? You drive by memory. Has anybody ever done that before like I do? Good, four of you. Fantastic. <laughs> Honey, there's at least four of them that do the same thing I do. I want you to know that. Old habits die harder. What about when you get around like college friends, or you get around old friends, you start making college decisions again (laughs) or when young people when you go back and you stay at your parents house for a weekend like i grew up eating cereal and milk for like every meal of the day because i love dairy milk and cereal love 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 um if jesus asked me to give up dairy milk and cereal we'd have a conversation all right because i love it and we don't even keep dairy milk in the house anymore uh now my wife and i but when i go back to my parents house guess what i do And it's not even a cereal bowl. It's like salad bowl, you know? And we're talking about, if I combine frosted flakes and frosted mini-wheats, we're talking about some serious working with the cereal, and I'm just pouring whole milk in, you know? It's like, Mom, do you have any half and half? Because because old habits die hard. They do. They absolutely die hard. So here's what we're going to do. Today, we're going to take a look at one verse. One. We're going to take a look at this statement that Jesus makes to this woman take heart daughter your faith has made you well it, it had immediate implications it had immediate consequences but it also had implications for the way that she would live her life going forward the way that she would live her life after that moment if you're looking for it in your Bible it's Matthew chapter 9 verse 18 take heart Daughter, your faith has made you well. And we're going to talk about how this one statement had lifelong implications for the woman as she learned to live healed, as she learned, uh, unlearned old habits. And we're going to talk about how the truth Jesus speaks to her is applicable for us as well. And it teaches us to live as people who have been redeemed. So let's start here. Let's start with the way that she would have lived up to this point. Don't you think she lived in fear? 12 years of chronic bleeding, pain, fatigue. Don't you think she lived in fear? Fear that she would die, fear that the tumor she likely had probably was going to take her life. Fear she would never get better. Remember she had spent all her money on doctors? Everybody remember that the last week? Don't you think there was a fear? Maybe I won't even have enough money to eat next week because I've spent all my money. Fear that she may never have any friends. She lived in fear. And here's what I know about fear. Here's what I know about fear. Where there's fear, there's shame. Where there's fear, there's shame. You guys know the song, right? Love and marriage, love and marriage go together like a horse and carriage, right? Same goes for shame and fear. They are inextricably bound. Shame and fear, shame and fear go together like Pizza and beer. I think. I think that's how it goes. I think that's how the song goes. I don't know. I don't know about that. I've read that on the internet, so I don't know. But shame and fear go together. Where there is fear, there is shame, and I can almost guarantee you that that's the way she lived her life. What is what is shame? It, it's not this statement like I did something wrong. It's this statement I am wrong. You see the difference? You see the difference? Psychologists call this toxic shame. It's when negative self perception becomes completely debilitating, and I will bet you dollars to donuts that that's the way this woman lived her life in fear and shame. So when Jesus comes along and he says to her, Take heart, take heart, it's an idiomatic expression that means be of good courage be of good cheer. Listen, don't be afraid anymore. You once lived in fear. That's not you anymore. We're going to replace it with something different. No more fear, and we're going to replace it with something different. So what does fear get replaced with? This is an interesting question. Here's why. If you're not happy, you are, Dad, there you go. If you're not proud, you are. If you're not afraid, you are. Sure, assuming, but courageous, maybe somebody. I'm gonna, I'm gonna suggest something else to you this morning because courageous, confident, those are all great. But I'm preaching, so whatever. Um, so I, I'll, I'll make the, I'll make this choice as to what we replace fear with. Not really, because here's this is what I think the scripture replaces fear with. I think the scripture replaces fear with joy. I think the scripture replaces fear with joy, and Jesus moves this woman from fear and shame to joy. Here's how we're going to say it. The healing grace of Jesus moves us from fear to joy. It moves us from fear to joy. Let me tell you a story, just help you illustrate, get your mind wrapped around it. A couple weeks before uh, Amy and I moved here, we went to Disneyland. I think Disneyland is the happiest place on earth. I absolutely love Disneyland. I do not love it because of the roller coasters. I love it because of the churros. I love it because they have this really special ice cream that you get by the tiki room. I love the food and like there's cartoon characters walking around everywhere. I don't need to go on a roller coaster for the rest of my life, but my wife loves them. She loves them. So we get into Disneyland, and it's like Big Thunder Mountain Railroad. That sounds pretty good. Matterhorn, that sounds pretty good. Space Mountain, that sounds pretty good. And then she goes like this. There's a new one that I want to go on, and it's called Tower of Terror. So listen, here's the thing. I don't like towers, and I don't like terror. Like, I step on a mall escalator and sometimes, like, whoa, slow down. Like, I don't need to get to the food court that fast, right? Like, I am not interested in going on the Tower of Terror. But happy wife, happy life. Peter would say, live with your wife in an understanding way. So I get on the Tower of Terror with my wife. And so here's, here's what happens. This is I stand in line for two hours so Sweating like a sinner in church, man. Like, I am just, I'm sweating in line in order to get on a ride that's called the Tower of Terror. Like, how dumb is this, you know? So, we get on the ride, and sure enough, I'm screaming like a 12 year old girl at a Justin Bieber show. I mean, I am just absolutely terrified. I'm terrified, and I think I'm in a vomit, and I get off the thing, and I'm dizzy. In the middle of the ride, I look over at my. And in case you don't know what this thing is, it's it's like, it's like world's worst elevator is what it is. it's just all the up and down the whole time. It's like the dumbest ride ever. God bless Disneyland. Okay, so um, so I look over at my wife in the middle of the ride. She is squealing with joy. It's like the coolest thing ever. She's having an absolute ball. It's the best thing. And I'm trying not to vomit on her. That's all, you know, success is. I don't throw up on the other people that are on this ride with me. Here's what I know about fear. Is, is, is when fear goes away, joy starts to increase. When fear decreases, joy increases. When fear is gone, joy abounds here's how we're going to say it today the absence of fear gives us capacity for joy the absence of fear gives us capacity for joy so so the healing grace of jesus for this woman and for you when he says to this woman take heart when he says to you take heart he's removing fear and replacing it with joy that's good news that's life in jesus there's no more fear, and no more shame, and I'm moving to a place of joy. So the question is, how do we get there? How do we get there? How do we allow that healing grace of Jesus that happens in a, in a moment but, but has implications over a lifetime, how do we live from that place? How do we get there? And here's where it gets tough. Here's where it gets really tough. Because getting there takes a step. Getting there takes risk on our part. Getting there takes doing something that might be a little bit difficult. Um, We have a a gal in our congregation. She's a a member here. She's a great gal. She's away at college right now. She wrote a blog this week that I think absolutely is critical for helping us understand what it means to move from fear to joy. We're going to look at what the scripture says, but let me read to you this blog that she wrote. She wrote this. She says, I'm a very quiet person. That's how she intros this blog entry. I don't like letting people in. It makes me feel vulnerable, and I don't like that feeling. I have my box, in bold letters, and my box is safe. I don't want to have to open up and let people in my box because it's my box. If someone I know is having a problem and I'm here to listen, great. But as soon as I'm having a problem, I go into my box and try to deal with it myself in my box box introvert much she writes this that being said when i mess up and i believe i do mess up i don't share my problems and sins with others you hear it i keep them to myself and dwell on them becoming consumed with shame and self-loathing the thing is i know christ was put on the cross for my sins for every impure thought I've ever had, for every rude, sarcastic comment I've ever said, for every time I've blatantly ignored someone who's asked for my help, God has forgotten it all. He will not remember my sins. His word tells me this in Isaiah 43. Did you hear how she kind of goes inside of herself? She, 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 I don't want to disclose. I don't want to let anybody in. And, and what that does is it builds shame and self-loathing. Did you hear it? Okay, here, here's how the book of James says it. James says it this way, James 5, verse 16, he says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another. In in my friend's words, get out of your box and pray for one another that you may be, say it with me, healed. You see it? Do you see it? The move from fear to joy begins with vulnerability. The move from fear to joy begins with vulnerability. Vulnerability confessing our sins to one another, praying for one another that we may be healed. Vulnerability has two aspects. If you do not know Jesus today, if you've never met him, if you've never said yes to him, the move from fear to joy begins with letting Jesus in and getting vulnerable with God. Here's the great thing about God, is, is that a lot of people try to do this religious thing when they pray, and they try to like, say all the right words and use holy words, and you know they use the King James Version or something, and so people, like if, if you know, we, we go to God, and I do this sometimes too, and I try to like, act like I'm holier than I really am, you know, oh God, thou art holy. Like I don't ever use thou art anywhere else, but I use it, right, when I pray. Thou art holy, thou, thou art 10 pounds of holy in a five pound bag, Lord, thou art holiest art thou thou reignest holily on thy throne and God's listening to me going you are not fooling anybody if you want to live in fear and hiding that's up to you but if you want to move from fear to joy it starts with vulnerability and it starts with going to God and saying okay God here's the deal here's what I think about, here's how I feel, here's what I think about you, I'm not even sure if you're really there. And you know what God responds with is, now we can move somewhere. Now that you're honest, now that you're telling me where you're really at, because I already knew that anyway, I'm God, that's what I do. But now that we're talking, we can move. Number two, it means getting vulnerable with somebody else. And this doesn't mean just throwing up on people emotionally. We're talking about vomiting a lot this morning. I'll try to stop. I'll try to stop. It doesn't doesn't mean just like, you know, just going crazy, just unloading your emotional baggage on whoever, whenever, however. What it means is choosing a couple of people in your life that you trust, your spouse, friends, a mentor, a pastor, and saying, I want to confess my sins to you so that you can pray for me and so that I may be, what, healed. Choose somebody this week. Choose somebody you trust. Spouse, friend, mentor, pastor. We're always here. Come talk to us. Get vulnerable with God and get vulnerable with others because here's what I know about fear and shame. They love to be kept secret. They thrive in the dark. But once we speak them, they lose their power and joy starts knocking on the door of our life. We're going to practice this together this morning. So, here's what I want you to do turn to somebody near you there and tell them, I'm a mess. Turn to somebody, do that, tell them I'm a mess. See? Vulnerability. Vulnerability, confessing our sins to one another. Turn back to that person and tell them you're a mess. bunch of hypocrites got excited about that second one, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. You turn to somebody and say, I'm a mess. I'm a mess. Turn to somebody and say, you're a mess. You are a mess, man. Just shooting up people. You're a mess. You're a mess. You're a mess. Here's the deal. You want to move from fear to joy, it starts with vulnerability. It starts with vulnerability with God. It starts with vulnerability with others. Number two, the healing grace of Jesus moves us from disconnection to belonging The healing grace of Jesus moves us from disconnection to belonging. Remember, this woman had no community whatsoever. Twelve years of chronic bleeding meant she had no relationships. And Jesus says to her, take heart, what? Daughter. It's the only person in the New Testament that Jesus calls daughter. Here's what Jesus says. He says, I know you have nothing. I know you have no one. I know your parents don't get it. I know your husband has abandoned you or you were never married. I know you were never able to have children. I know you never felt a part of anything ever, but you are my daughter. You belong to me. You belong with me. And check this out. You know that God says the same thing about you? Ephesians chapter 1 says, and paraphrasing here, God started a family a long, long time ago so that he could adopt you into it. You belong. Let that sit in just for a minute. God Almighty says to you, you belong to me. You belong with me. Why is this important? So I thought about it this week for myself. Here's what I needed from the Scripture this week. This this is the one statement that I needed from the Scripture. Here's why belonging is so important. Because if I already belong somewhere, I won't be tempted to settle for belonging elsewhere. If I already belong somewhere, I won't be tempted to settle for belonging just anywhere. And some of you think, what is that even, I don't even get that. (laughs) Let me, I'll tell you a story just to kind of help us wrap our minds around it. Uh, Before Amy and I moved here for six or eight months, we lived in Old Town Scottsdale. For those of you who have been to Scottsdale before, you know that Old Town Scottsdale is like party central. Like when we went to bed at night, typically at like 8.30 because, you know, we get tired. Um, So 8.30, 9 o'clock, we could hear the bars and the clubs from our house. Like the hippest, the hippest bars, the hippest dance clubs in all of Scottsdale, we could like spit from our house and hit these places. And, and it's during spring training and, and the, the nice times of year in Scottsdale, this place was absolutely bananas, just crazy party. And, and so Amy and I would tuck into our house and with our dog and the pool in the backyard and all of our Christian friends and pray for them. And so... Um, so here's, here's what Scottsdale is notorious for, um, we call them $30,000 a year millionaires. It's the guys who walk into a bar, the guys who walk into a club and they're wearing the nicest, hippest, newest shirt from whatever department store or whatever and they're wearing the jeans with all the embroidery and sequins all over them, you know what I'm talking about? Like a big tiger on them or whatever it was. I never got into those jeans but you know we saw guys wearing those things and they come in and they, they, they're buying drinks for everybody and they're the life of the party and they did a bunch of squats that morning and they're really tan all right? and they have great abs um, and they really don't have any money. But they act like they do. We, we would watch people, men, women, everybody, in that scene, and everybody is trying to impress everybody else. You know why? Because they needed to belong somewhere. i, I got to belong at this club. i got to belong at this bar. And even if, I, if I, I, I don't have belonging anywhere else, so what do I do? I settle for belonging just anywhere. This is why people get in uh, long-term, very unhealthy relationships, because they need to belong to someone, belong somewhere. This is why people go out and live unhealthy lifestyle, because they need to belong, they need to feel like I fit here. This is what Jesus says to you. Take heart, daughter. Take heart, son. You belong to me, you belong with me, so you don't have to settle for belonging just anywhere. If you already belong somewhere, you won't be tempted to settle for belonging just anywhere. With God, there's no need to impress. He doesn't care how much money you make, who you married, or who you know. He doesn't care how you've messed up. He's made saints out of far worse people than you. He doesn't care if you've got bad breath sometimes or if you can't seem to lay off the Oreos. He doesn't care if you're impatient sometimes or if you're not terribly emotionally stable or if you're just an all-out mess. He doesn't care. He says you belong to me. I wonder how long it took for this woman to live in a place, live out of that identity. I'm, I'm, I'm a daughter of God. I wonder how long it took. I bet she had people around her that, that helped. Remember, 12 years without hugging anyone. You think she had to relearn how to do that? I think she had to relearn how to hug. Do you think she had some friends who were tender and said, said now that now that you can touch somebody here's what you do you put your arm like this and then you put this arm like this and then we embrace each other and tell each other we care about each other you see there's this moment when jesus says you belong you are my son you are my daughter and no one can ever take that away from you but learning to live that way the move from disconnection to belonging takes time it takes time It takes time for others. It takes time for you. Give yourself time. The Bible talks about this everywhere. It says we grow in Christ. Growth takes time. It says we learn about Jesus. That takes time. Personal holiness takes time. The transforming work of God's grace takes time. And sometimes, just like this woman must have, we need help. We need help, and so we've got to invest time in other people and allow other people to invest time in us, friends, mentors, pastors. That's why we've got professional counselors right here on this campus, Wafa, Ron Wise, others that are helping people learn to live from this identity of belonging. Yours truly, I I go to counseling. When we go back to Phoenix, love it, because someone helps me to learn to live from that identity, that I belong to Jesus I belong with Jesus. Is there a relationship in your life that needs a little more time? Maybe a small group. Maybe a spouse. Maybe a friend. Maybe they're there to help you learn to live out of that place of belonging. Maybe you're there to help them. But you've got to invest the time to move from disconnection to belonging. Number three, Jesus says, take heart, daughter, your what? Faith has made you well. The healing grace of Jesus moves us from restlessness to faith. It moves us from restlessness to faith. It moves us from from scrambling and trying to impress and jumping through hoops and trying to do all the right stuff. And just a simple rest and trust in Jesus. As I thought about faith this week, as I thought about this move from restlessness to faith, I just kept coming back to James chapter two. James chapter two says this, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Here's what James is saying. I've placed my trust in God. I've placed my trust in Jesus. And the way that manifests itself in my life is by obedience, not the other way around. I don't jump through the right hoops and do the right things and impress God with my obedience so that he saves me by faith through grace. He has already saved me by faith through grace, and and now that works itself out in obedience in my life. I do what Jesus says. Faith always manifests itself in obedience every single time. Every time, faith manifests itself in obedience. The move from restlessness to faith requires obedience. The move from restlessness to faith requires obedience. It's placing my trust in Jesus. A couple weeks before, I keep talking about talked a lot about vomiting we've talked a lot about the last couple weeks before we came to Toronto but that's okay so a few weeks before we came here uh, Amy and I went skydiving okay listen for a guy who doesn't like the Tower of Terror I I almost just came apart with skydiving but again Amy was like let's go skydiving that sounds fun oh yeah throw me out of a plane from 15,000 feet beauty Uh, it's awesome so we went skydiving and 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 I don't know if you know this about how many how many people have you gone skydiving anybody gone skydiving Oh, my gosh, there are two other stupid people here. That's great. Um, me plus two more. We got, a, we got a trio here. That's great. That's awesome. So here's what they do in skydiving. This is what I did not know. I thought that they would take you up in this plane, and it's, it's skydiving. I thought you'd... I thought you jumped I thought you stepped out of this plane that's not accurate they take this plane up to 13 15,000 feet or whatever it is real high right and and here's what they do once you're ready you kick your feet out the door the guy I'm strapped to this uh, instructor he says kick your feet out the door I said no I don't think so not interested he said look but there's only one way down I'm trying to argue with him like well, could, could we just land like it's been beautiful it's been lovely and I could just step out onto the ground after we land. He said, no, 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 kick your feet out the door. So here's, here's what they do. It's not skydiving, it's sky dumping because they take this plane and just turn it on its side and go like that. I'm serious, they just dump you out of the plane. So Amy is still in the plane, strapped to this other instructor. When we finally got down to the ground, Amy says to me, um, I'm really glad you went first because if I went first, you would have demanded that they land the plane, you know? <laughs> I paid my money. You will bring this plane to the ground, you know, just freaking out. The the first time you go skydiving, it's called a tandem jump because what they do is they strap you to this other instructor, and they buck you in, all these safety things and all this stuff, and then uh, basically you trust someone else to, you know, to, to land the parachute and to pull the chute at the right altitude and all that stuff. Could you picture me saying, okay, instructor guy who's jumped out of planes like 80 billion times and still is in one piece, I trust you. I trust, I trust you. I, I, I'm not going to be restless. Do you see where we're going? I'm not going to be restless. I'm going to put my trust in you to safely bring me to the ground, and he says, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to tie this off, and we're going to strap this in. And we're going to buckle this, and that's how we're going to do it, and we're going to pull the chute at this altitude, and you're going to enjoy yourself, which I did. Uh, what if I said to him, you know what, let's not buckle that strap this time, or let's kind of rush through this because I need to head out. We're, we got lunch after this. Let's, let's just try to wrap it up. Let's not do all the safety checks you normally would. We don't really have to get all the way up to that altitude. Let's just, you know, drop out at whatever altitude. You don't have to pull the chute at that altitude. I'd like to pull it at this altitude. What would you tell me? You would tell me I was an idiot. And I would be. Guy's jumped out of the plane 2,000 times before. And, and he's always come in one piece. And I have never done it before. If I trust him, what does it mean? I'm gonna do what he says. I'm gonna do what he says. We do this in our spiritual life all the time. I have people come into my office or call me on the phone or whatever, and they'll say, Look, my financial life is busted, it's broken, it's it's a mess. And I'll ask questions like, Hey, are you giving to God's church? Are you being generous with your finances? Are you a good steward of God's money? And then i said no, 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 no. And I said, well, that makes sense then because that you would experience brokenness in your financial life because you're not doing what God says. Or people come into my office and they'll say, my relationship life, especially single people, my relationship life is, is messed up, man. It's crazy. I, I, I need to experience God's healing. I, I, I need something different in my dating life. Okay, cool. Tell me about the last few people you've dated. Did they love Jesus? Well, you know, they'll go to church with me well so that's not what i asked i didn't ask if they'll go to church with you i asked do they love jesus because that's what the scripture says date somebody that loves jesus so it makes sense to me while you why you might have four or five or however many relationships in a row that have been hurtful and broken and disappointing because the move from restlessness to faith requires obedience What about you? Is there a place in your life where you see brokenness, where you see patterns of stuff, difficulty? Take a cue from the woman. Take a cue from Jairus. Let your faith be a catalyst for an all-out, no-holds-barred search for Jesus. And what that will manifest itself in is obedience to what he says. We've covered three things this morning. We're going to put them all up here on the screen right now. Three things. We've said that the move from fear and shame to joy requires vulnerability. The move from disconnection to belonging takes time. And the move from restlessness to trust requires obedience. And in each one of those, we've kind of talked about a couple of ways that that might be going on in your life. Here's my encouragement to you. Pick one pick one. We're not going to try to do all three. We're not going to get crazy, right? Pick one that the spirit of God is kind of nudging your heart right now. You need to get vulnerable in order to move from fear to joy. You need to start investing more time with me and time with others in order to move from disconnection to belonging. There are particular areas of your life that you still withhold, that you still disobey, that you're caught up in habitual sin. And if you want to move out of restlessness and into just a simple trust in Jesus that he's going to land this parachute, he's done it 2,000 times before, it means doing what he said. Pick one, jot it down, apply it this week, put it to use, come let me know how you did. Sound good? We're going to do that together because I've already got mine. I studied the passage this week. I've got mine already. Okay? It's not, I'm not just telling you. We're doing this together as a body, so we can be conformed and transformed into the likeness of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Pray with me. As I do that, I'm going to invite the band back up and worship team, and they're going to close us as we worship and give. God, we love you, and we know that your healing grace will move us from fear to joy. It will move us from disconnection to belonging. It will move us from restlessness to trust, but it takes a step on our part takes vulnerability it takes time it takes obedience ask holy spirit of god that you would impress upon the hearts of folks in this room that 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 area of our life that that you're drawing us near that area of our life that that we need to make some shifts make some changes so that we might walk closer with you and experience the life that you have to offer we lift this up together the church of god said amen